Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the full message directly after. Hello and welcome back to The Last Word. I'm Cam and I'm here with my two co-hosts this morning. We got Johnny. Johnny. (laughs) That was nice and sync. Hi, Johnny. Hello. And we also got... JD. It's good to be here this morning. It's great to be here. It's great to be here. Well, um, we're returning from spring break, and so we're today just kind of, oh my gosh, words, going to be talking about uh, JD's message from last time and right before spring break, and it was awesome. So I have a couple questions for you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so in what ways have you learned to trust in the sovereign mercy of God? On Thursday, we talked from Romans 9 and um, about the sovereign mercy of God. And so I want to know in what la- what ways have you learned to trust in that and this great characteristic that we have of God? I think that there is a distinction uh, that needs to be made. I, I said on Thursday that when we begin to trust in God's sovereignty, in his mercy, then that mm-hmm. frees us from from getting angry or frustrated or anxious or overwhelmed. Well, those feelings are natural. Like it's natural to feel those things when Mm -hmm. abject things happen in our life. Like when things that are outside of our control happen, it's natural to feel those things. What this specifically pertains to is how we react when those things happen. What do we do with those feelings of anger and frustration and being overwhelmed and being anxious. And for me, very practically, it is taking those things to God. It is just saying, God, I am not in control. I don't know what's happening right now. And I lay my feelings before him. God, I am frustrated. I am angry. I am hurt right now. And just show me what you have for me in this because I can't I, I don't know what that is. And so it is an mm-hmm. act of turning that over, surrendering to God, and just giving him the permission to work in those situations and through those situations for my ultimate benefit. Mm, that's good. That's so good. I really like the, it's okay to have those feelings and it's all about just trusting God with those feelings and that's how we should react. And when I think of his sovereign mercy, what first came to mind is, um, just that we often can think that we have to work, you know, hard whenever we are in a tough spot. Whenever we do fall short, we feel as if, you know, God's mercy is almost not enough. We think we have to earn that. And the reality is we'll never earn it. It's, you know, it's already there. It's that free gift. And it's, you know, just something we got to accept, just like you were saying, JD, to just come to him with our feelings and realize that, you know, it's mercy. That's what it is. It's not, you know, like, an earned, uh, I guess, evil playing or like level playing ground yeah. um, that we have to try to meet ourselves at with him. <clears throat> and so, yeah, when we fall short, I think that's when we really need to trust him is in that he still loves us and he still sees us for who we are. Mm, I love that. Yeah, that's really good. Um, so this is actually a good transition because I, as I was reflecting on it and thinking about it, um, practically, JD, I was wondering how you kind of mentioned like just bringing it to God, but practically, how have you seen throughout your life knowing and understanding these truths and uh, about the sovereign goodness and mercy of God? How have you seen that impact the way that you live your life when things do happen and when storms do come? That's a great question. <laughs> I have had a lot of plans for my life. <laughs> I've had plans for what my life was going to look like since the time I was 18 years old. When I went off to college, I had this idea of what my life was going to look like. 
And that has changed progressively over time. And I can tell you that it's never looked like any of my plans. (laughs) For all of my planning, it has never worked out. Yeah. And for me, that has been the huge thing that I have had to learn to trust in is that, no, it's not a bad thing to plan. It's not a bad thing to have goals. It's not a bad thing to work towards things, but it's ultimately trusting that God's plan for my life is better than what I could have for myself Mm -hmm. and that it's a greater adventure, that it's leading me to an unknown place that forces me to trust in Him. Because at 18 years old, I thought I was going to be basically a scuba diving bum at this point. I thought my plan was to move to the coast and like study fish for a living. And here I am living in San Marcos, working and pastoring college students. And ultimately, I've just had to learn to trust like, yeah, this looks nothing like what I thought my life would look like, mm-hmm. but it is so much better and more fulfilling than I ever could have imagined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are basically the same things. Um, <laughs> yeah, for me, I think that what it looks like for me practically is that I'm not you know, happy despite, I mean, I'm not trying to like put on a fake face that I'm really happy whenever things are getting tough, yeah. but in reality, like coming to God and trusting in that mercy, what it's looked like for me is that I'm genuinely joyful through the storms because, you know, I think of joy as, you know, happy despite the circumstance. And like God's genuinely given me that like contentness and that I do trust in Him. And I'm like still fulfilled. I'm still happy. And I still find satisfaction in the storms because, you know, God is so good and that it's a lot easier to, I guess, know that He's right there next to you and I don't know, that's so much more comforting. And it really shows, you know, in your actions and the way that, you know, you treat others. Um, I think that's a lot better than, you know, when things are going good and you actually don't even seem joyful in those times. And mm-hmm. I think that it really just comes from like, yeah, just trusting in God's sovereignty and letting that, you know, first flow into, you know, your heart and then it'll outpour in your actions. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I'd say joy is the biggest thing that I've seen it impact me at least. Yeah. Um, One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 16, 9. And it says that we make our plans, but ultimately it's the Lord who directs our steps. So like, go make your plans, but the Lord is ultimately going to be in control and is going to be sovereign over those. It's so awesome. And so after Thursday, I was thinking about how when you said, we're not going to go into this rabbit hole of like the sovereignty of God and all these Mm kind of things. I, I can't help but think about if there's people in the audience who are listening and we're still wrestling with that concept. And so I want to know what advice would you give to anyone who might be wrestling with the concept or the idea of a sovereign God being in control? I would say lean into that. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that I think that uh, the church has gotten wrong for a long time is we've made an enemy out of doubt Mm. as opposed to a friend out of doubt. And doubt is not a bad thing. Doubt is not a bad thing. Unexpressed doubt can become a dangerous thing. And so I would say lean into those questions, Mm -hmm. speak those out, ask them to people, seek wise counsel, and read the word for yourself. I know that's not like revolutionary to say, but like go and read God's word because in, in God's word, you will ultimately find the answers for the questions that you're asking. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the sovereignty, it's it, I think that we need to make a distinction between kind of where some of the theological questions are about God's sovereignty and the overall concept of God's sovereignty. Yeah, sure. Simply, 
God's sovereignty means that he is the author and the creator of the universe and that he is intimately involved in his creation. And so if he is the one who has brought order out of chaos, Mm. that is to recognize that God is ultimately sovereign over all, that he is Lord of all and that he is in control. The rest Mm. of that is secondary. And so let's start with the primary thing And then we can continue to explore all of the questions and the doubt and the secondary things. But we ultimately have to recognize that God is the author and the creator of the universe, first and foremost. For sure. Wow. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I definitely think going into the Word is the best thing Mm -hmm. to recognize these tough questions. Mm -hmm. Because as you read, you know, stories about like Moses or stories about Joseph, as you go through the Bible, just reading it as a narrative, uh, in those stories, you get to see God's sovereignty, you know, mixed with like, you know, humans' free will and just like his love for us and how he does have these plans and how he does care about our thoughts and our actions, you know, whatever's going on in our lives. And so you, you get to see just this beautiful story that like, that God is the author of, you know, our lives. And you get to see that, I don't know, we play such a cool big role um, in that whenever we allow him, you know, to work through us and, it's really cool to see that, especially, you know, you look at like Moses whenever he's like, but God, you have this cool plan, but I have this speech impediment. I really don't want to do that plan. And you're like, dude, you're talking to God. Um, but it's he's cool like, to, mouse. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's cool to see that like God's got these plans, but he still hears you out and that your, your cares, your worries and stuff. And he still, you know, can work through his plan uh, despite that. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. When we seek him, he can't be anything but good to us, yeah. um, even in the wrestling and, and the doubts and all the hard things of life. He's so good. So um, I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to JD for the last word um, to give us some upcoming updates about this coming week. Absolutely. So last week, uh, we started in Romans chapter nine, which is a new section in the book of Romans. And it's all about how the gospel fulfills God's promise to Israel. And so Romans chapter nine is all about how it it talks about Israel in the past. And then this week, we're going to turn the page in Romans chapter 10, and we'll talk about Israel in the present. And Johnny is going to take the stage this Thursday. So that's something I am really excited about. So you guys tune in this week for more on the nation of Israel. I'm thankful for an opportunity to gather with y'all, and I'm excited to continue to explore the biblical text with you guys. So far this spring, we have been uh, walking through the book of Romans. Um, been studying through the book of Romans, and we're going to continue to do that throughout the rest of the semester here at Crosstalk. And since we've been doing this for a while, I think that it's, it's worthwhile of our time to kind of stop and think about where we've come so far. The book of Romans can be broken down into four sections or movements. That is, uh, that you have the chapters one through four form a section. Chapters five through eight form another section. Chapters nine to 11 make up the third section. And then chapters 12 through 16 make up the final section of the book. And what we did is we started by talking about chapters one to four. And in chapters one to four, it is all about how the gospel of Jesus Christ reveals God's righteousness. And then we transitioned when we went to spring retreat and kind of wrapped up last week with Cam chapters five to eight. And chapters five to eight are all about how the gospel 
creates a new humanity, that in Jesus Christ we are given a new identity and that we are adopted into the covenant family of God and that allows us, this new identity, this new family allows us to live differently in the world, empowered by the Holy Spirit, which is a lot of what Cam talked about last week. And so we're entering into the next section tonight by reading chapter 9. Now chapters 9 to 11 This section talks about how the gospel fulfills God's promise to Israel. This is kind of the big looming question in light of what Jesus has done. Because so much, about two-thirds of the Bible, the entire Old Testament is about the nation of Israel. And the question is, what what kind of has happened now that Jesus has entered the picture? Where does this leave the Jewish people? And when you break down a letter like Romans into these sections, it makes it easier for us to understand because you're doing it in pieces. I know for me, um, I I work on a slightly different school schedule in graduate school than you guys do. And so this next week is finals week for me. And so I've had two papers due. I have one due tomorrow and I have one due at the end of next week. And about Tuesday, I started... I had a good start on the first paper that's due tomorrow, and I was starting to think about, it's like a, a humongous research paper for my final. And so I kind of cracked open the syllabus, and I took a look at what this paper was supposed to be, and I just found myself so overwhelmed to the point of like pretty serious anxiety in this moment. I was just like, I don't know, what, what am I looking at? Like, what is happening? I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. And oftentimes, for me, when you look at a a large biblical book, especially one as theologically deep as the book of Romans, that's where I end up, is this feeling of being very overwhelmed by trying to understand all of it at one time. And so we break it down into these pieces. That's why you break it down into sections, into movements, because these are manageable chunks where we can see the kind of themes that the author is talking about in these chapters. But when I study letters in this way, I have the tendency to slip into this mindset where these sections become very separate things, like they're their own book or their own letter. And so I think of chapters one to four as a complete literary unit. And then I think about chapters five to eight, and I think, well, this is another complete literary unit because there's an argument and a theme that goes with it. And I would then do the same thing with the remaining two sections. And... This is kind of like when you go to a nursery, like to buy a plant, not like a kid's nursery. But you go to a nursery and you say, I'm looking for a tree. Like I want to plant a tree in my backyard. And so you walk to the section of the nursery where all of the trees are, and they're sitting in individual big black pots just next to one another. So you're like, I want an apple tree. Well, all of the apple trees are sitting as close as they can possibly get to one another, but they are in their own individual containers. They don't overlap. They don't share anything. And I think that oftentimes we can approach uh, letters or books of the Bible in this way, where we think of them as these very individual literary units, but they do not interact with anything that's touching them. They're just separate, and they stand on their own, and they might be related to one another, but they're not connected to one another. And so if you were to keep going in the New Testament, it's like, well, this is also about salvation. Great. And so you compile this list of Paul's letters, and they all are kind of similar and kind of different, and we just place them next to each other without seeing how they interact. Well, the same thing happens when we break down a larger book like Romans into these four sections. 
But what Paul wants us to see when we read Romans is how all of these ideas are connected and intertwined with one another. Uh, I love, I wanted to study biology when I got to Ohio State. Then I realized I wasn't smart enough. Um, But I still love specifically environmental science and and ecology and things of that nature. And, And a lot of my passions involve being in the outdoors. And one of my favorite trees in the entire world is an aspen tree. One of my favorite trees is an aspen tree. Now, these aspen trees grow only above a certain altitude. So you have to get a certain number of feet above sea level, really, for aspens to start growing. And so what happens is you get into these high alpine environments where you are walking through, maybe you're going to go hike to the top of a mountain, and you're walking through these meadows. And when you get to the edges of the meadows, there's oftentimes these entire groves of aspen trees, just rows upon rows of these beautiful trees with the white bark. And normally during the summer, they have these nice green leaves. But if you go in the fall, you catch them in this beautiful color phase change. You can see them when they're yellow and when they're orange and when they're red. And it's really, really remarkable. Have you get any of you guys ever seen the nature walks videos on YouTube from a while back? Lenny Pepperbottom. Yeah, Lenny Pepperbottom on his nature walks. And he says, uh, he walks up to an aspen in one of his videos and he goes, you can tell it's an aspen because of the way it is. (laughs) Was always his line. And when I was a backpacking guide, people would ask me, well, how can you tell that it's an aspen? And I would look at the tree and I'd be like, well, because of the way it is. And they would just look at me like I was the stupidest person alive. (laughs) It's just an unhelpful. And I realized that most people who weren't my age have never seen those videos. If you guys have never seen nature walks, that is worth, I think they're only like three minutes long. Like, go back and watch all of these on YouTube later. But the coolest part about these trees is actually what lies under the ground. As beautiful as they are and as remarkable as they are in the fall when they begin to change colors, there's something way cooler that happens underground. What scientists have discovered is that all of these aspen, in all of these aspen groves, all of the trees are interconnected to one another. So if you go down under the ground, they share a single root system. And so there's no such thing in an aspen grove as an individual tree. It is tapped into the same root system as every other tree in that section of the forest. The pando, it's called the pando, and it's a colony of aspen trees in in central Utah. And scientists have determined that the pando is actually the largest single organism in the world. That aspen grove numbers roughly 40,000 trees that share a single root system. And so all of these things are entirely interconnected. What they've actually been able to prove is that the trees, and this is totally me nerding out for a second, is that the trees share nutrients with one another. And so they are giving food. So a, a tree that is struggling, trees are pulling their nutrients and sending them through the root system to trees that are struggling. It shows that they communicate with one another and that they, they actually help one another. And it's this remarkable thing that all of these are tapped into, into a central root system. Now, what's really beautiful is when we start to think of the scriptures in the same way. Not as these disconnected sections of scripture, but how these ideas and these themes are interconnected and intertwined throughout the letter. And it's really beautiful because in those moments, we begin to see how God's righteousness 
is intertwined with his ability and, and the way he has created a new humanity in Jesus Christ. And that those things are inseparable to one another. And then we see that because he's creating this new humanity, now he has to deal with the question of where does that leave the Jewish people. And so all of these things are connecting with one another. And when we begin to see that, that is really when we begin to understand what Paul is trying to tell us in his letter to the Romans. Now, while chapters 1 to 8 in Romans explain God's eternal purpose that has been fulfilled in Jesus, that leaves us with the important question. What is the status of Paul's fellow Israelites who don't acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah? How does the story of Jesus fulfill God's ancient promises to them? So that's what we're going to look at today. If you guys want to open up to Romans chapter 9, we're going to start here in verse 1. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. That's like the ultimate way to start your argument, right? I am speaking the truth. I am not lying. You got to say both of them. I'm telling the truth and I am not lying. So I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's talking about the Jewish people here. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul begins chapter 9 with his own anguish over fellow Israelites who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He lists all of the privileges that the Jewish people have been afforded, and yet they don't acknowledge Jesus. He says that they, that they have the adoption, that they have the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. They have had all of the benefits that no one else has received, and yet they missed it. They missed it in the person of Jesus. Israel was called to be God's messenger to the world and has seen the message successfully delivered in Jesus, yet they missed it. And so there's tremendous irony, and there's tremendous tragedy in that. And that is the reason for Paul's anguish. He wants his people to come to know Jesus. To see what Paul is going to do here in the rest of, of Romans chapter 9, that now follows, we must recognize that what he is going to do, and we got to front load this, is that he's telling a single story. What Paul is going to do throughout the rest of chapter 9 is he is going to tell a single story. And it's not just any story. He's going to retell the story of Israel from Abraham to the exile and beyond. And the point of the narrative he's going to tell is that all that has happened in the history of Israel was not outside the purposes of God. That all that's happened in the history of Israel is not outside of the purposes of God, but what has actually been promised all along. So he goes on in verse 6 and he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. 
but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. He's speaking about God's promise to Abraham here. And he reminds me, he reminds us that simply being an ethnic Israelite, simply being an ethnic Jew or a physical descendant of Abraham has never ensured that you are a part of the family of God. That's what he's saying here. He goes on in verse 10, he says, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Has Israel failed to believe the gospel? Well, maybe. Maybe, but that doesn't mean that God's word has failed. And what's being demonstrated here, what Paul is showing us is that God has always selected a subset of Abraham's family line to carry on the promise. He has always specified one son to the other, one twin over the other, one small group while the rest fall away, one tiny remnant while the rest suffer in exile. And his point is that now in the present, the line of promise is carried on by those who follow Jesus. That's the reason he brings this up. What God has promised, God has done. He goes on in verse 14, he says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What Paul is doing is he's drawing us back to the story of the Exodus. He uses the language of the story of Israel and the golden calf while Moses is up on Mount Sinai. And he draws us back to Pharaoh's rebellion and refusal to let the Israelites go. And he's showing how God was able to orchestrate events so that people's rejection of God actually accomplished his redemptive purposes. People's rejection of him actually accomplished God's own redemptive purposes. He goes on in verse 19, he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, for which he has prepared beforehand for glory? 
even us whom he called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Paul reminds us that for a very long time, people inside and outside of Abraham's family have rejected God's will. For a long time, people have just been disobedient to God's will, whether they were Jewish or not. And this section tells the story of God's judgment that ultimately led to the exile of the nation of Israel and through it to the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and Jesus. He goes on in verse 25 and he says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And these verses basically just function here at the end of this passage as scriptural proof texts for what Paul is saying. He's basically saying, here, here are my thoughts. Now, here are the things from, from the Old Testament that prove what I'm saying to you. This is why this is trustworthy. N.T. Wright, who, who is an incredibly well-known Pauline scholar, reminds us that here Paul is not writing some abstract hypothetical essay on the way in which God works within individuals, or for that matter, with nations or races. This is specifically the story of Israel, God's chosen people. It is the unique story of how the Creator God has worked within His covenant people to bring about the purposes for which the covenant was made in the first place. It is the story, in other words, whose dramatic climax moment happens in the Messiah, Jesus. And there are a lot of moments in my life where this passage has been and can be of great comfort to me when I am in circumstances that are really overwhelming for me. And it may seem a little counterintuitive that a passage about the history of Israel would be something that's incredibly comforting to me, but it's true. Verse 16 says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The changing of my circumstances does not depend upon my human will or effort. No matter how frustrated or angry I get, too often when I'm in a hard situation, I have no ability to fix it. I have no ability to make it better. I have no ability to change the situation that I'm in. But Paul tells us instead, depend on God who has mercy. This text alone, even without its context within this chapter, brings peace to my heart when I am troubled and anxious because I realize that my life is not all dependent upon my own human effort. It's not all about how hard I work or what I do to change my situation, but instead it's about dependence upon God. 
And there's been a lot that, that has been written over the last 2,000 years in regard to God's sovereignty. And this could be like an incredibly long rabbit hole for us to travel down. But there's an important moment in this for us to expound on God's sovereignty. Here, Paul assures us that the God of creation overflows with mercy for us. That the God that we know in Christ Jesus overflows with mercy for us. And that even negative judgments have mercy in view all along. If only we have the humility and faith to find it where it has been placed. Learning to rest in the sovereign mercy of God revealed in Jesus Christ is one of the most valuable parts of our Christian calling. Learning to rest in the sovereign mercy of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The question is, how do we do that? Well, I have a friend. And uh, my friend Bob is uh, one of my favorite people in the world. He's also one of the most frustrating people in the world for me. Because what I do is Bob and I hang out every Wednesday. Bob and I get coffee every Wednesday. And I sit with Bob, and I bring Bob all of my really complex problems that I have going on in my life, the things that I don't have an answer for. And what happens is I tell Bob this very long story about this very complex thing that is going on in my life that I feel like I don't have an answer to, and Bob always has an incredibly simple answer for me. And so it's incredibly comforting because it's simple, but it's also incredibly frustrating because I never got there by myself. Now, Bob has five rules for his life. He only has five rules. And one of those rules is non-resistance. And his non-resistance is the ability to accept life situations as they occur so that they can be evaluated in light of truth and reality. Non-resistance is the ability to accept our life situations as they occur so that they can be evaluated in light of truth and reality. When we accept our life situations as, the, as they occur, without getting mad, without getting frustrated, without getting overwhelmed, without getting anxious or angry, we demonstrate trust in God. We relinquish control of our life to God. And we come under God's authority so that His that he, in his sovereign mercy, he begins to reign supreme in our life. Let's think about this in another way. We're going to go a little bit Truman Show here for a little bit. So I want you to take like now a third-person view of your own life. And you think, and I want you guys to think about your life as a story. That's why I said Truman Show. You're watching your story. Now, you are always the protagonist in your story. It's your life. You're always the main character in your own story. So, if we resist what is happening in our lives and we choose to make that situation the antagonist, if we choose to make that situation our, our adversary, there's always a possibility that we are found opposing God. That's the reality of it. If we make our situations our adversary and we resist those with everything in us, we may be in a spot where we are resisting what God wants to do in our life. Now, not only is that really not fun, 
But the good part is that we can trust that God accomplishes his purposes even in those ways. But because God is sovereign, if we make the choice to not resist our current life situation, but instead seek to allow him to guide us through the circumstances by staying focused on him with an attitude of gratefulness, his favor, God's favor and his leadership make us participants in his divine activity in the world in Jesus Christ. There's the flip. We can either get really frustrated and spend all of our time, effort, and energy trying to resist what's happening in our life, or we could submit and stop resisting to what is happening and actually allow God to use us in the midst of adverse circumstances. That is non-resistance. That is learning to rest in the sovereign mercy of God. When we stop resisting our circumstances and instead rest in God's sovereignty, ultimately we find peace. We find peace. And this isn't a, a peace that is circumstantial that's only around when times are really good in our life, but this is a peace that actually is more present in times of trouble. And it's more present in times of trouble because we accept that we ultimately can do nothing to change our circumstances. And so we throw ourselves wholly and completely upon the mercy of God, trusting that he will ultimately take care of it. Just a chapter before this, in Romans chapter 8, Paul declares that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. If we look back at this chapter, at the history of Israel, we see that God has always used imperfect situations to bring about his redemptive purposes. So why don't we stop resisting and begin to live in the peace that God offers us through trusting him? Actively placing our trust in him. Stop resisting the circumstance that we're in. About two Sundays ago, um, about two Sundays ago, driving home from church. As I'm driving home from church, uh, earlier that week, Taylor had decided that she was going to make a career change. So she was moving from one job to the other, and there was going to be a period of time where we were down to one income. And so I'm driving home, and I'm thinking about, and I'm stressing about the budget tightening during that small window of time. Thinking about, oh gosh, I got, we got to save money, we got to find ways to do a good job of, of not spending, we're just going to get creative, it's going to be really good. And as I'm driving home from church, my check engine light comes on. Perfect timing, right? Perfect timing. And in that moment, I got so mad. I was so mad. I just want to run the car into the nearest tree I could find and just be over with it. I was just so frustrated. And what was really, really dumb about that situation is I already knew what was wrong with the car. I knew how to fix it. And yet, I just wanted to get so upset. I just wanted to resist the circumstance that I was in. But instead, when I place my trust in God, that whatever he wants to do, yes, it was an easy fix for my truck. But what if it hadn't been? Well, God is still ultimately in control, and he is the one who's going to provide. And so I'm only wasting my own time getting upset. 
as opposed to just submitting to the circumstance, submitting to God and trusting that he is ultimately working in and through it. And I want to be a participant in that as opposed to resisting it at every turn. 